Hi, everyone. I want to invite you to go ahead and take a seat. My name is Laura Bauer, and I'm the spiritual growth assistant here at Twin Cities. And my husband, Michael, is the high school director. And we've been at Twin Cities for about two and a half years now and have felt right at home from the beginning. Over the past few months, I've really gotten the chance to find some new hobbies. And one thing I've really loved to do a lot is to read. And my favorite book over the past few months is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. This book talks all about how we as humans were never created to be in a hurry. And if you look throughout all of the New Testament, you see that Jesus was never in a hurry. Sometimes Jesus just took a nap. This has encouraged me to take a look at my own life and see where I need to slow down, not only in my day-to-day -day life, but in my mind as well. In reality, we're all kind of forced to slow down right now, right? So shouldn't we take advantage of that? If you're anything like me, my mind is always racing, and I'm always thinking about the next thing. But be encouraged that it's OK to stop, it's OK to slow down, and it's OK to breathe. So I want to invite you to take a deep breath with me right now. Let's take a deep breath in this moment. I want to encourage all of you to take a look at your own life and see where you need to eliminate hurry. Now we get the opportunity to slow down together as I read our verses out of Nehemiah 8, 1 through 6. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 6. Thank you, Laura. Well, as John mentioned earlier, my name's David Timms. I'm up from uh, the Flatland down at William Jessup University, and this is my annual pilgrimage. I come up each year and kind of see what's changed, and uh, while Ron's not here this weekend, uh, he kindly invited me to come and share with you from this, uh, this series through Nehemiah. And what a, what a great story it is, and what a great series to be a part of. And Ron, Ron always gives me the best passages to preach from. Uh, it seems like he finds these verses that are just glorious. And uh, he said, hey, come up and preach from Nehemiah chapter 8. That would be great. And I said, that would be great. I love that chapter. As some of you would know, the, the, the ancient historiographers, those who wrote history in the ancient world, they wrote for a different reason than many of us would write history. If I asked you to write a family history, you might include all sorts of facts and details and places and people and all sorts of interesting stories. 
mostly so that people who came in successive generations could know at least what happened in the past. This is what your grandpa did and your great-grandpa and your great-great-grandma and where they came from, etc., etc. In the ancient world, they wrote stories for a different reason. They wrote stories specifically for ethical and moral reasons, to teach us how to live. Uh, paper was too precious. <laughs> uh, writing materials and education was so rare that you couldn't waste it on, on trivial things. You had to have a purpose for it. And so when we come to the book of Nehemiah, we come to a book that has this purpose as well. Ne this, this story of Nehemiah is not just about what happened to Israel 2,500 years ago. This is a, a story about how we should live today. So let me recap the story very briefly with you this morning and uh, then we'll get, we'll get ourselves organized for a quick jaunt through chapter 8 when we get to it. But it's 445 BC. Some of you already know the story. It's the 20th year of Artaxerxes. He's over in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. So he's 850 miles from Jerusalem and he's three months' journey from Jerusalem. Nobody's got social media. Nobody can text what's going on. And this, this Jewish fellow there, in the court of Artaxerxes by the name of Nehemiah, gets a word from the Lord. He gets it through a brother and from some visitors, and they basically tell him, Jerusalem is in tatters, right? You, you're familiar with the story. You've been in this series for a little while. Nehemiah is the, the, the king's cupbearer. He's the, he's the wine taster. He's the wine specialist. I don't know, but uh, that might not have always been a, a very comfortable position to have because he's the one who tastes the wine before the king drinks, lest it be poisoned. Every sip, as you know, is an act of service and potential sacrifice. I don't know if any of you followed the news this week, but uh, does the name Alexei Navalny ring a bell for you? Uh, he's a, a, a dissident, a Russian dissident, a, a vocal opponent to Vladimir Putin and I, th I guess on Wednesday of this past week, he's on a flight in Russia and somebody puts poison in his tea. And they take him off uh, the plane and he's in terrible shape. I think yesterday or maybe Friday, they, they flew him out to Germany to try and get him help. People still poison drinks. It's never stopped. That was Nehemiah's job. So Nehemiah gets this news from so far away that Jerusalem is in bad shape. The, the walls are broken down, the gates have been burned with fire, and the people living there, as few as they were, are in great distress. You, you remember the story. So Nehemiah asks permission of the king to go and return so that he can help the people. Artaxerxes, remarkably, because he knows if he says yes to this guy that it's three months to get there... <laughs> however long it's going to take to help the people and three months to come back, he's going to be without his number one wine taster and cupbearer for at least six months, probably 12 months. In, in fact, it turns out to be a number of years. And he gives him permission. Not only does Artaxerxes give Nehemiah permission, but he says, hey, and here's some letters of reference so that as you're traveling through different provinces, if, you've got a, if, you, if you come against anybody who, who wants to challenge you, just show them these letters. And a letter of reference in the ancient world was really kind of a, a letter of threat as well. It's kind of like, touch this guy and I'll be coming after you. And then he says, oh, and by the way, take some of my army officers and take some of my horsemen with you to keep you safe on the trip, the favor of God. You know the story, Nehemiah gets there, the place is a wreck. 
Uh, Jerusalem is just uh, destroyed and begins to motivate and organize the people to rebuild the walls, to, to refortify the city. It's not an easy task. Half the people are picking up shovels and trowels to start rebuilding these walls. The other half are standing guard to protect them from the enemies. And even those people who are working, we find in chapter 6, are working with a, a trowel in one hand and a spear in the other. These are not great working conditions by any means. And yet by God's grace, in chapter 6, verse 15, which was last week that Pastor Ron preached from, they re rebuild the wall in a record 52 days. Less than two months from ruin to restoration. It is a remarkable summer project. Actually, I don't know if you're aware, but, but this is the perfect time to be doing the series through Nehemiah because this was finishing up in August and September. The wall was being finished and in September is where we find ourselves when we come to chapter 8. It was a remarkable project and it finished up. And these are the words of chapter 6, verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Well, we're not going to spend time in chapter 7 this morning, but let me capture it very quickly so the story is not incomplete. In chapter 7, the walls are rebuilt, the gates are rehung, worship leaders are appointed in chapter 7, guards are set at strategic points around the wall, everything is looking really good. And Nehemiah does two things. Number one, he takes account of all of the people. Now, there's a small group living in Jerusalem, but there's a whole bunch of other Jewish people living in towns and villages around about, sort of within walking distance, and he calls them all together and he counts them. He takes a census, just as we're doing right now in the US. Uh, on that particular occasion, he counted nearly 50,000 people. So a good number of folk. Not all in Jerusalem, but in Jerusalem and roundabout. And then the second thing he does in chapter 7 is he collects money from them so that now they can rebuild the houses and the homes that uh, have been destroyed as well. Then we get to chapter 8, our reading this morning. Laura read it so well, let me capture those first couple of verses again. So here's how we read it. All the people came together as one. Now, I don't know, that's 50,000 people. <laughs> Somebody's got to be out there watching the sheep, right? Somebody's got to be out there cooking some meals. But, but thousands and thousands of people come together as one in the square before the water gate. This is in Jerusalem. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And we're going to go on to the next slide, maybe, maybe not. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Now the first day of the seventh month, you know, we have 12 months of the year, 365 days. The Jewish calendar runs a little differently than ours. The first day of the seventh month, which is five days after they finished building the wall, for the Jew is New Year's Day. It's Rosh Hashanah. This year, in 2020, Rosh Hashanah is September 17th. It starts, it go, kind of goes over a weekend and beyond. But September 17th. That's the first day of the seventh month. So we might translate this and say, on New Year's Day, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and everybody who was able to understand 
And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Uh, The people gather on New Year's Day to listen to the word of God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine uh, they're listening to this word of God from from early in the morning, perhaps uh, six in the morning till midday. The six hours. Can you imagine if Pastor Ron and the staff here said, hey, everybody at Twin Cities, on New Year's Day, we're all going to gather and we're going to stand for six hours and listen while we read Scripture. I'm not sure how that would go over these days. I'm not sure how much response there would be. But the people had called Ezra to do this. And Ezra opens the book and he begins begins to, to read the scripture and listen to how the people respond chapter 8 tells us the people stood and periodically they're going amen amen keep reading <laughs> we're loving this oh no oh no now we're beginning to realize why we're in such dire straits because we've strayed away from the way of god and they start crying they start tearing up and the leaders start seeing them, them weeping out there in the crowd. And the people are raising their hands high and they're, they're placing their faces low to the ground. And they talk about a full body experience, right? As the word of God is being read. And they did this for eight days. Eight days. Friends, if these stories are told so that we can know how to live... And at least this week, for me, there are two takeaways from the story so far. And the first lesson is simply this, that walls, walls without the word are never enough. Walls without the word are never enough. The first six chapters is all about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and it's an amazing thing. The enemies are afraid, they're, they're staggered by what God has been able to do through these people. The gates are rehung, the enemies are now backing off, and that might have been enough for some of us just to stop and party. <laughs> some of us might have said, hey, isn't it great, we've, we've fortified the city, we are good to go. But Ezra says it's not enough. It's not enough, and he pulls out the book. Why? Because we might have the blessing of God, but if we don't know the way of God, it's not enough. It's not enough. Ultimately, the flourishing life doesn't come from fortification, but from meditation. What an unusual thought. That the flourishing life, when you and I are living at our very best... It's not because we've got everything dialed in. It's not because we can afford everything. It's not because our jobs are secure. It's not because our health is good. It's because we have the Word of God in our hearts. This wasn't news to Israel or to Ezra. The Lord has always called His people to follow His Word. My mind goes back a thousand years before the day of Nehemiah to a fellow named Joshua, (laughs) And Moses has just handed the mantle to Joshua and said, take these people into the land. And God is saying to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Take these people into the land. Listen to these words from Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous, says the Lord, because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and courageous. And and Joshua's thinking, well, I'm a military guy. (laughs) Okay, I can be strong and courageous. 
Now, where are my generals and, and where are others that I can gather and we can, we can work this out together, we can strategically plan how to take this land. And the Lord says in verse 7 of Joshua chapter 1, be strong and very courageous. And then this, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Well, hang on, Lord. If you just give us enough military personnel, we'll be successful wherever we go. If you just fill our coffers with coins, we'll be successful wherever we go. If you just hold back drought and pestilence, we'll be successful wherever we go. And God says, no, no, no. Have my word in your heart and be careful to obey it. Don't turn from the right or to the left and you'll be successful with wherever you go. Verse 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate, there's the word, meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go and you will succeed if you keep my word in your heart and on your lips. The early followers of Jesus knew this. Jesus himself knew this. He says to the devil on one occasion, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The early followers of Jesus followed that up sometime later and said, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit. Oh, this word of God has a particular capacity in our lives. Friends, are we building walls without the word? See, the story of Nehemiah, as we kind of pan back to 30,000 feet and look at the whole story, we're going, this isn't really about walls. Because walls without the word are never enough. We're building our own homes and our own fortresses, our own castles, our own businesses without the word. It could happen so easily. But it'll never be enough. Our 401ks, our 403bs, our IRAs, our Roth IRAs, whatever it is you've got out there, our property, our health, these things cannot produce the flourishing life. It's just stuff. Now, job security and financial security make a difference for sure. They did rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. <laughs> but they, the walls without the word were never going to be enough. Our future, this week, this week, depends on so much more. You want to learn to pray? Start reading the Psalms. Do you need guidance to make some tough decisions at home or at work? Start reading the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. You want to lift your eyes above all of the chaos and the darkness that seems to be in the culture around us? Read, read Philippians chapter 4. You're feeling anxious about tomorrow or this coming week? Spend some time in First Peter. Walls without the word will never be enough. God's people, on their best days and in their finest moments, have always been a people of the book. Have always been a people of the book. You may have walls under construction in your life, but walls without the word will never be enough. 
And here's the second thing I take away from the story as we come to it in chapter 8. That the word without application is wasted. The word without application is wasted. Back in Jerusalem that day, Ezra stood and he started to read. But in verses 7 and 8, we read that other people stood up too. There are other people on the platform with him. He's on this, uh, this, he has this podium that's set up above the people. And, and these other folks start standing up and they do two things. Some of them are translating what Ezra is reading because not everybody knew Hebrew. Not everybody knew this, this old language. <laughs> and so there are some folk there translating as the Bible's being read, they're translating it quickly and immediately to others. And then there's some other folk there with, uh, with Ezra, and, and they're, they're interpreting, they're explaining the text. And people are saying, so what, what does that mean? Oh my goodness, does that mean such and such? Well, let, let, let me tell you quickly, Ezra, just catch your breath, have a drink, and while you take a sip, <laughs> we'll tell the people a few things, we'll interpret and we'll apply the text to their lives. And as they were doing this, on the second day of the reading, they came to a passage that said, in the feast of this month, the very feast that they're there for, the very month that that this is now day two of, you are to take branches and build booths, and you are to sit in these booths as a way to to recognize the, the goodness of God and to celebrate God's faithfulness and provision. And the people said, well, my goodness, when have we ever done that? We've never done that. So the the day after New Year's Day, an edict goes out. Everybody's to go and they're they're to cut down palm branches and olive tree branches, branches of any tree you can find. Bring the branches together and create these little booths and we'll sit in these booths to be obedient to the word of God for the next six or seven days. And the people did it. And verse 14 says, And they were rejoicing greatly because the word of God when it's applied, makes a difference. They didn't just pass off this whole thing of booths as an interesting idea. They immediately set about implementing it. Friends, there's nothing magical about reading the Bible. The magic happens when we live the Word. When when this Word of God becomes living and active within us because we respond to it with our lives. That's when the Spirit of God does extraordinary things in us and through us and around us and for us. But to live the word, we've got to know the word. James in chapter 1, New Testament, verses 21 to 25, says these words. He says, So get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and do this instead. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. He goes on in verse 22, says, Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Uh, Kim and I had had, had dinner with some friends this week and uh, she was reflecting back on her early days dating and she said she dated a guy one time who every time they went past a storefront or anywhere there was glass or a mirror, he had to stop and look at himself and preen himself a little bit. And she said they'd walk down the street a little further and then he'd see himself again in the reflection and he'd be doing this again. She said, I I could hardly stay focused with him. 
The guy was forgetting from this point to the next point, which is about 10 yards up the street, exactly what he looked like. And James says, don't, don't be like that. Verse 25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, remains in it, and it in that person, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. Oh, do you hear the word of God and step up to do it? Or perhaps if some of us grown a little tone deaf to the word of God. I notice over the years that sometimes, almost imperceptibly, what can happen for some of us is a little bit of a critical spirit creeps in, a little bit of cynicism, maybe hurt, creates a little bit of doubt. And the word comes, and the word comes with consistency, but it doesn't seem to find that deep place in our hearts. And the word is there, and we know the word, but something has just distracted us from doing the word. And the story of Nehemiah is a reminder that the word without application is wasted. How does the story of Nehemiah connect with your story today and with mine? It goes without saying, this, this COVID-19 thing, it's unparalleled. I'm as ready for this to be behind us as I'm sure you are. Initially, over 40 million Americans lost their jobs. 17 million are still without gainful employment. You know the stats, well over 175,000 have died. They're the people that we've been able to count and know for sure. And today, families all across this nation and, of course, countless families around the globe continue to grieve and need to rebuild. The walls have broken down in their homes and in their families. Broken walls everywhere, homes in disarray, perhaps... Perhaps you're among them. Perhaps there are people you know and you feel like, oh my goodness, this just feels like such a Jerusalem day. We are in despair. How will you rebuild? Perhaps your heartache has little to do with unemployment or sickness. Maybe, maybe what you've found in your marriage this last five months, just, just being holed up together in the house a bit more... <laughs> That's easier said than done. Kim and I, for 36 years, we've had this great routine. I leave the house in the morning. That lets her recover. I come home at night and she's strong enough to take me on again. <laughs> right? And now I don't leave the home in the morning. Now I'm there all day. And in some households, that produces a lot of tension. We're out of routine. I'm out of sorts. I'm irritated. I'm irritable. It's just not easy. And you pile some kids in on that equation and, and everything changes. It's, it's challenging. Maybe the walls of your marriage need some repair. But remember today that walls without the word are never enough. Walls without the word are never enough. And the word without application is wasted. What's your next step this week? The people of God have always been a people of the book. As I read through to Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm just convicted again, I'm encouraged again. 
I'm inspired again to find the book at the center of my own experience. Perhaps the Lord is calling us as his people to stand up and read his word like never before, to be fully equipped to live life like never before in a crisis such as none of us have ever been through ever before. Would you pray with me? Father, we pause in this moment thankful for an ancient story, ancient history that touches our own hearts. Because there are people in this room, there are people on the patio, there are people online participating in this moment in Nehemiah chapter 8 whose walls are really shaky if not tumbled down. Father, for those of us in that place right now, some of us would dare pray, would you restore the walls and you, would you restore your word to its central place in our hearts? For those of us who know people who need the restoration, Father, help us to be encouraging and supportive. May they see in us the power of your word, the rejoicing that comes with it. And Father, for all of us, may you find us a people leaning into you, not simply defining life in our own way, but learning your way and walking in it. We pray this because of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.